Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Centralia, Washington. During each episode, you will hear the sermons, liturgy, discussions, and interviews from the various weekly gatherings here at Christ Covenant Church. If you would like to find out more, please visit us online at ChristCovenantCentralia.com. Please enjoy the following audio. Well, let us rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. From Psalm 119. Thou hast dealt well with thy servant, O Lord, according unto thy word. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. Thou art good, and I was good. Teach me thy statutes. The proud have forged a lie against me, but I will keep thy precepts with my whole heart. Their heart is as bad as Greece, but I delight in thy law. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. The law of thy mouth is better unto me than thousands of gold and silver. Thy hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn thy commandments. They that fear thee will be glad when they see me. Because I have hoped in thy word. So lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us pray. Let our prayer, O Lord, enter into the presence of thy majesty. And as thou hast recalled us like lost sheep from our former errors, so grant that taught by the preaching of thy statutes, we may attain to the full grace of thy loving kindness. Wherefore, we say, Glory be to the Father, who is good and gracious. Glory be to the Son, the Word, that endureth forever in heaven. Glory be to the Holy Ghost, who giveth light and understanding unto the simple, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. And amen. 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 Well, we come now to Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 5. Uh, you can find this on page uh, 5 of your bulletin. So let's read, a, uh, read this together, and then we will uh, consider its truth. So question 5 asks, Are there more gods than one? Answer, there is but one only, the living and true God. If there was one verse in the Old Testament that every Hebrew boy and girl knew by heart, it was probably Deuteronomy 6.4, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. This confession of absolute monotheism is what distinguished Israel from the other nations. As it says in Psalm 96, For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Paul says similarly in 1 Corinthians 8 that, We know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. Scripture speaks in many places of a diversity of gods, or Elohim, as we just heard. And these uh, so-called gods, as Paul calls them, 
can refer to angelic beings or even human kings and rulers. For example, in Psalm 82, it says, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. And I take gods there to refer to human rulers or magistrates. So when the catechism asks, are there more gods than one? There is a sense in which you could answer yes. There is a plurality of so-called gods in the world, but none on the same level as Yahweh. Of course, what the catechism is really asking here is, giving everything that we just said about God in question four, which you all have memorized by now, right? What is God? He is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, right? We spent two months on that. Given that definition of God, how many of those gods are there? And to that question, scripture is absolutely clear. The answer is one. In the time between Old and New Testament, that roughly 400-year time period, certain Greek philosophers had arrived at monotheism as they reflected upon the nature of reality. For example, Aristotle famously reasoned that there must be some first cause which set everything else in motion. And there can only be one first cause. There can only be one first cause that is perfect and infinite in being not a plurality of them. This, of course, harmonizes with the Christian belief that it is both metaphysically and philosophically impossible for there to be more than one infinite eternal cause of all that is. But what Aristotle lacked was knowledge of who that first cause was. While you do not need scripture to arrive at the belief that there is only one God, you do need scripture to know his name. And as he reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush, the one God calls himself, I am that I am. Or as Jesus explains in Revelation 1.8, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. There is only one true God, and this is his name, I am that I am. To contemplate these things should remind us of our need to confess our sins. So as you are able, let us kneel before the Lord. Father, we confess all of these sins to you in Jesus' name, and amen. amen. Let us rise for the assurance of God's pardon. The enemies of God are brought down and fallen. But we are risen and stand upright. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is God's mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Saints of Christ's covenant church, because you have confessed your sins, holding nothing back, it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. Our sermon text this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, verses 1 to 20. These are the words of God. And he began again to teach by the seaside, and there was gathered unto him a great multitude, so that he entered into a ship and sat in the sea. And the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. And he taught them many things by parables, and said unto them in his doctrine, Hearken, behold, there went out a sower to sow. And it came to pass, as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. And some fell on stony ground, where it had not much earth, and immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. 
And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. Another fell on good ground, and did yield fruit that sprang up and increased, and brought forth some thirty, and some sixty, and some an hundred. And he said unto them, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, they that were about him with the twelve asked of him the parable. And he said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables, that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. And he said unto them, Know ye not this parable? And how then will ye know all parables? The sower soweth the word, and these are they by the wayside where the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan cometh immediately and taketh away the word that was sown in their hearts. And these are they likewise which are sown on stony ground, who, when they have heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and have no root in themselves, and so endure but for a time. Afterward, when affliction or persecution ariseth for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. And these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts of other things entering in, choke the word, and it becometh unfruitful. And these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word, and receive it, and bring forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some hundred. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for revealing unto us the mystery of your kingdom. We ask now that as we consider this parable from the Lord Jesus, that we might be given ears to hear and eyes to behold your glory and thus become fruitful. We ask for your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. How many sermons have you heard in the course of your life? How many sermons have you listened to? If you have been a Christian for, let's say, 10 years and went to church consistently every week, that is roughly 520 sermons that you have heard thus far. It's quite a lot. Now, uh, if you grew up in the church and are now in your 30s or 40s or 50s and beyond, you have no doubt heard by now many thousands of sermons, perhaps even over a hundred thousand sermons if you attended Sunday school or midweek or evening services or, you know, listened to sermons uh, via podcast or something like that. That's a lot of preaching that you have listened to over the years. Now, um, according to Jesus, each of those sermons was an opportunity for the sowing of the word. And the question Jesus sets before his audience is, how did you respond to that word? What kind of fruit, if any, has come from all of that hearing? Did it do anything? What is different in your life because you heard those thousands of sermons? Well, you see, our text this morning is a sermon on how to hear a sermon. And this is the first extended block of teaching that we uh, encounter here in Mark's gospel. This parable Jesus uh, tells and the explanation of it is the skeleton key to understanding all the other parables. So if you don't understand this one, you won't get any of the others. 
Jesus says in verse 13, Know ye not this parable? How then will ye know all parables? So the stakes are high here for Jesus' audience and for us who want to understand. So uh, let's walk carefully through this text and uh, see what the Lord will show us. Um, Our text divides neatly into two. Uh, In verses 1 to 9, Jesus preaches his sermon to the multitude by the sea. He gives them, it says, various parables. And then verses 10 to 20 there, Jesus privately explains uh, one parable in particular to his disciples. And uh, to remind us of the context here, uh, for the previous three chapters, Mark has been uh, developing and playing with this idea that there are insiders and there are outsiders. And he's done this by using uh, the imagery, the scene of people being either inside or outside the house. And usually uh, this is Peter's house in Capernaum where uh, Jesus has, uh, we presume, taken up residence. And there are, if we were to look back at those three chapters, there are roughly five groups that we have met so far. So first, there are the 12 disciples. They're in the house, of course, and we uh, expect them to be in the know. We expect them to be in the know. Second, there are the the multitudes. These are the sick, the demon-possessed, people trying to get into the house for healing and deliverance. Uh, In chapter 2, we saw a paralyzed man let down through the roof, you know, forcing his way into the kingdom. Third, then there are Jesus' family and friends. They are outside the house, and they are excluded because they think Jesus has lost his mind. Fourth, then there are scribes and Pharisees. And they claim he is possessed by the devil. They blaspheme the Holy Spirit, as we saw last week. And then finally, uh, these aren't exactly people, but it's the group of demons, right? There's been, a, there's been demons in like every uh, chapter in this gospel so far. And they keep saying that Jesus is the Son of God, but then Jesus silences them. So those, those are the groups. This um, insiders, there's outsiders, there's, there's people who are in the know, and there are people who are not. And Mark continues to develop this theme as Jesus now gives them this parable. And what this parable is, is really an explanation for why there are such diverse and strong opinions about him. How how is it that a, a large group of people can all hear the same words, the same sermon, but go away from it with radically different conclusions? This is what every pastor wonders, right? Someone says, that was the best sermon I ever heard. And someone says, why did you say that thing? Right. Okay. Uh, so, so how is it that people hear but don't really hear? Or some people hear only what they want to hear and therefore don't really hear. Maybe you've been arguing with someone and, and it's this, right? You're not hearing what I'm saying. This parable is going to put everyone who hears the word into one of Four categories. So this is a parable that is meant to give us distinctions. It tells us who is in and who is out, who is inside the kingdom, who is outside uh, the kingdom. So uh, with that as the context, let us now walk through our text starting in verse 1. It says, And he began again to teach by the seaside. And there was gathered unto him a great multitude, so that he entered into a ship and sat in the sea. And the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. Now think about this scene for a moment. If someone is by the sea, but on the land, where are they? On the shore, right? On the beach, on the seashore, right? And the seashore is a very significant location in the Bible. 
God says to Abraham in Genesis 22:17, "I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies." So when God first preaches the gospel to Abraham, it is a promise that his seed is going to be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And so here, what we have in Mark's gospel is we have the seed, the seed of Abraham, the son of promise, in whom all the nations will be blessed. And Mark tells us there was gathered unto him a great multitude. So you got a multitude on a beach in Israel. We should all recognize immediately, okay, this is Abraham's seed. There's something connecting us here to God's promise in Genesis. Verses 2 and 3, it says, And he taught them many things by parables, and said unto them in his doctrine, Hearken, behold, there went out a sower to sow. So here now begins the parable, and notice, what is the parable about? It's about seed. It's about a sower sowing seed. A sower went out to sow. In the Old Testament, seed is a very important idea and concept. It is what Uh, You know, you think about what circumcision is. Circumcision is about trusting God that if you circumcise someone, there still can be a promised seed to come. It is a symbolic castration of sorts. So uh, in the Old Testament, we see the way that seed is used. And seed can signify both people, right? So people, there's Abraham's seed. But it also can signify God's word. And in this parable, seed is going to represent both of those things. Now, before I read the rest of this parable again, I want you to put yourself in the position of the crowd. Imagine that you are not going to get that private explanation later with the disciples. This is all you get to work with, this little parable. And honestly ask yourself, would I really understand what Jesus is teaching here? Would I be an outsider or an insider? Do I have ears to hear? So let's Read now the parable, verses 4 to 9. And it came to pass, as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. And some fell on stony ground, where it had not much earth, and immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. And other fell on good ground, and did yield fruit that sprang up and increased, and brought forth some thirty, some sixty, and some in hundred. And he said unto them, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. So that's all you get. How did you do? Did you you understand the mystery of the kingdom in that little story? How many of us would hear that sermon and have a little idea what to make of it without Uh, Further reflection, further explanation. You can imagine walking home with your family after this, you know, arguing with one another about what represents what. You know, what did that parable mean to you? What's more, uh, when you read the commentators on this passage who have Jesus' explanation, there is still a diversity of opinion about what is going on here. So there is, of course, general agreement that this is about different kinds of people who respond differently to the word. That much is true. But how does this parable reveal to us the mystery of the kingdom? 
What is it about the kingdom of God that we are taught by seed and soil and birds and thorns? Well, that is what the disciples want to know. So verses 10 and 11. And when Jesus was alone, they that were about him with the twelve asked of him the parable. And he said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables. So here, Jesus makes a distinction between those who are in and those who are what he calls without. As much as some Christians don't like the us versus them mentality or dialectic, uh, properly understood, this is the way Jesus created the world. As he says in Matthew 12:30, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So the first division Jesus makes is between the multitude outside who only get parables and the disciples who are inside unto whom the mystery of the kingdom is, quote, given to know. Parables for outsiders, kingdom knowledge for insiders. Now, uh, perhaps to some of us, this might seem very elitist, that there is this uh, privileged 12 disciples around Jesus and then the masses outside. You know, why not give this private interpretation to everyone. Why speak in parables at all? Well, uh, in a very real sense, this is actually what the gospel accounts are. They are the things that were spoken in secret, which are now being shouted from the rooftops. However, at this stage in Jesus' ministry, that knowledge is being concealed, and it's being concealed for a purpose. And this is one of the real riddles of Jesus' ministry. Why does he come speaking in parables? Well, Jesus gives us an answer in verse 12. So verse 12, um, all these things are done in parables that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. Wow. This is a hard saying. This is a hard saying for many Christians to accept because uh, it kind of appears at first glance that Jesus is saying, I preach in parables so people will not be converted. It's a, kind of an odd oh, ministry to have, right? My, my goal is that I don't want them to understand. So what's going on here? How do we uh, reconcile this with the fact that Jesus came to die for the sins of the world? Is this a contradiction? Well, if we know our, if we know our Bibles well, uh, we know that Jesus is giving us a quotation here. So this is a quotation in verse 12, and it's a quotation from the book of Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 6. There are also allusions here to Jeremiah chapter 5. But uh, in Isaiah 6, it's a very famous passage, if you know Isaiah, that's the, the holy, holy passage. So uh, God commissions Isaiah to be a prophet there. And then after that, for the next 50 plus years, Isaiah is going to preach repentance and forgiveness and the word of the Lord to Israel. Isaiah is going to be sowing seed. Now, if you know the history of Israel at this time, this is 700 years before Christ, uh, do they listen to Isaiah? Well, mostly not. Mostly not. Uh, 18 years into Isaiah's ministry and the northern kingdom of Israel falls to Assyria. They are taken off into exile. A few generations later, while Jeremiah is preaching the same thing, and the southern kingdom falls to Babylon, and Judah is taken into 
exile. So the purpose of Isaiah's ministry, and really all the prophets of this time, is to warn a stubborn and rebellious people of the covenant, of God's covenant promise. A promise which you remember that rewarded obedience and punished disobedience. And so the prophet's job was to preach the covenant of grace, just like we do every week here. The prophet's job was to preach the covenant of grace, which meant that anyone who repents, anyone who returns to the Lord, will be forgiven and saved. That is a genuine promise held out to them. And in the time of Isaiah and Jeremiah, that meant being preserved as a remnant, despite Assyria and then Babylon conquering them. So Jesus quotes from Isaiah 6 for a purpose, and that is to identify himself and the nation as being in the same situation as before. Jesus is the prophet, the people have disobeyed, judgment is coming, but forgiveness is offered to all who repent. So listen to uh, Isaiah 6, 9 to 13. This is the section that Jesus quotes, and this is what unlocks uh, what he is doing here. It says, And God said to Isaiah, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant. The houses are without a man. The land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth will be in it, and will return and be for consuming, as a terebinth tree or as an oak, whose stump remains when it is cut down. So the holy seed shall be its stump. So why does Jesus quote this? Well, first, notice again the mention of seed this holy seed that is preserved like the stump of a tree. And also remember the context of Isaiah. Isaiah is being sent to a people that is already blind and deaf and under judgment. Keep on seeing, but do not see. Keep on hearing, but do not hear. So this people that Isaiah is sent to and that Jesus is ministering to is a people that is like Pharaoh. They have hardened their heart already as a stone. And so although the word comes to them, it does not take root. The truth only further removes any excuse they have and thus increases their guilt, right? This is why God hardens Pharaoh's heart after Pharaoh had already hardened his heart, and he keeps sending him more and more plagues, more and more plagues, witnesses to God's miraculous power. So this is exactly what Jesus has just experienced for the first three chapters of Mark, right? He's been preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He's been doing Miraculous works that have never been done in the history of man. He's exorcising demons. And yet, the Jerusalem scribes accuse him, accuse God, of breaking the Sabbath and of blaspheming, both of which are capital crimes. The Pharisees and the Herodians are plotting to murder him. So think about the situation Jesus is in. What do you do... I assume no one's been put in this position, but what do you do when the authorities have your phone tapped, when they're reading your emails, reading your text messages, trying to find dirt on you? Well, you start speaking in code. 
or in Jesus' case, you preach in parables. Why? So that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not hear, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. Jesus preaches in parables to further harden an unworthy and hard-hearted people. Jesus doesn't preach in parables to give uh, illustrations of his main point so that you remember it, okay? That's not, it's, if anything, it is the opposite. It is to conceal something. Jesus has a mixed crowd with mixed motives in front of him. And therefore, parables are how he can give the truth to some, to the worthy, while concealing it from others. And here, Jesus is just continuing to do what God has always done. As it says in Proverbs 25:2, it is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search it out. Or, as Proverbs 23:9 says, speak not in the ears of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of thy words. So parables are how God likes to separate the proud from the humble. It is how he separates the meek from the fool who thinks he knows it all. Now, it is most certainly true that God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. It says that in 1 Timothy 2, 4. But what scripture also teaches us is that God has a greater desire for something else. Namely, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. Romans 9.23, and that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Romans 9.17. So more than universal salvation, more than every every single person being saved, more than converting every fool and hard-hearted sinner, which God could do, God desires the revelation of his power and justice and grace and glory for those who are vessels of mercy. And that is ultimately why Jesus preaches in parables, so that the reprobate would be further hardened and receive God's good justice, while the elect are mercifully gathered into the kingdom. Parables, then, are a vehicle for God's grace and glory to be put on display. Now with that, whether you like that or not, that's the reason, uh, let us see now how Jesus interprets his own parable. So verses 13 and 14. And he said unto them, know ye not this parable? And how then will ye know all parables? The sower soweth the word. So so here we have Jesus identifying that seed as the word. And this word is sown, it is proclaimed indiscriminately. It falls everywhere. Jesus is teaching the multitudes. But notice that in the rest of this interpretation, it is going to be the people who are sown. So verses 15 and 16, And these are they by the wayside where the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan cometh immediately and taketh away the word that was sown in their hearts. And these are they likewise which are sown on stony ground. And it continues on. So Jesus identifies the seed as both word and the people sown. We are then told that the soil represents people's hearts. So now we have seed and soil, and these represent different kinds of people. And there are four different kinds of seed, four different kinds of soil, who receive this word into themselves. So I'm just going to summarize these four groups for us from verses 15 to 20. 
So the first group, the first group of hearers, um, is the wayside seed or the wayside soil. These are those who Satan devours immediately like birds of the air. They hear the word, but pay little attention to it. They forget the sermon as soon as they walk out the door. That's the first group. Second, there is the stony seed or the stony soil. These are those who, he says, have no root in themselves. They are what we might call kind of the surface or nominal Christians. They are the barnacles of the church. So uh, they get excited. They get excited when they first hear the word. They actually spring up with enthusiasm. They might even get baptized and join the church. But as soon as things get difficult, they fall away. Right? COVID happens and they stop going to church. Someone they love dies. A divorce happens in the family. Someone sins against them. And they are outraged that God would ever allow such a thing. They are offended and therefore they lose their faith. Maybe you know or have met some of these shallow Christians before. Third, there is the thorny seed or the thorny soil. These are those people who think they love Jesus but actually love the world more. They like all of this talk about the kingdom, about post-mill. They want to be the head and not the tail. They want to take dominion and have a lot of kids, but It turns out that they just want the accoutrements of the kingdom without the king himself. They want God to serve their dreams and ambitions instead of surrendering all of their dreams and ambitions to him. For the thorny seed, for the thorny soil, there is no real love for the Lord Jesus in their hearts, just a love for his stuff. Fourth, and finally, there is the fruitful seed, the fruitful soil. These are those who hear the word, receive the word into themselves, and therefore obey the word. And in so doing, by receiving this word, they become one with Jesus Christ. And because Christ is the fruitful vine who has life in himself, all who abide in him become exceedingly fruitful, even into old age, bearing 30, 60, and 100-fold harvest. This is what all of us, of course, should want to be. Good, fertile, fruitful soil that receives the implanted word with meekness and bears the fruit of the Spirit. So that is the mystery of the kingdom. The kingdom is the word planted inside of people. And if it is received, it changes them. There is one message, one gospel, one word before different kinds of people who respond to it. In Jesus' day, this parable was first and foremost an assessment of the multitudes. It was an assessment of the nation. God had promised by his prophets to replant Israel like seed in the promised land. A remnant would return from exile and flourish again. This is what happens in the time between the Testaments. The Jews uh, set up synagogues throughout the empire. They rebuild the temple. They win back some of their independence. And yet, all is not well in Jerusalem. There are thorns, there are birds, there are devils, and there are many stony hearts amongst them. And so the coming of Jesus is really the coming of God to inspect his vineyard. And Jesus will tell a parable about that later on. As Jesus says in John 9, 39, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see 
that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. So Jesus comes to judge how Abraham's seed is doing. And this parable is the first diagnostic Jesus gives them. And he wants them to reflect and consider on what kind of seed and soil they are being, what kind of heart is inside of them. And this is, of course, what God wants all of us to continue to ask ourselves today. How have you been hearing the sermons? Is there fruit in your life? Is there a genuine love for Jesus in your heart? Do you really love the king who died and rose to save his people? I'll close with this. It says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2, For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. God's promise of fruitfulness is offered to everyone who will hear with faith. So believe what God says when his word is preached, and in due time an abundance of harvest will come. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this parable. God, I ask that as we consider the soil of our hearts, that you would indeed uproot those thorns that seek to choke and crowd out the word. God, I ask that you would uh, till us, make us to be good soil. Grant that we would receive the word with joy, have root in ourselves, and indeed bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. This sacrament is God's word made visible. God knows that we are slow of heart to believe all that the prophets spoke. He knows that we are easily distracted, that our minds wander, that we forget things, and therefore are in need of many reminders. Well, this meal is our weekly reminder that God loves us. God has infinite love toward his people. It belongs to the essence of love to desire union, for lover and beloved to indwell one another. And so God gives us bread and wine to take into ourselves, and he calls it his body and blood. This is the intimate union God gives us in Jesus Christ, for us to be inside of him and him to be inside of us. As Jesus says in Luke 17, 21, Behold, the kingdom of God is within you. This meal, then, is the mystery of the kingdom made manifest. It is the gospel, it is Christ, it is fellowship with our Lord. So come and partake in faith, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge is this, nourish the word you have received today. Water it, make sure it gets sunshine, keep the birds and the pests and the thorns away, and then look for the harvest that is to come. Receive now the benediction. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. And amen. Amen. Go in peace.